the control is actually what gives you freedom. The control is actually what puts you in a position to innovate or grow. It doesn't matter whether or not you're selling fruit. Think of it like fruit. Mm. If you're not moving it through quickly, it's going to rot. It's going to smell really bad. I actually could see her face changing, <laughs> changing color. Like, And she said to me, I can just feel the weight dropping away from me when I think about what that would give me, that insight on my business. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Have you ever wondered what the hell merchandise planners do? They're kind of like the air filters of the retail world. Everyone knows they're really important, but most don't actually know what they do. Today, we have Susan Martin joining us, who is not just a merchandise planner, but one of the best in the country with her experience at leading retailers such as Cotton On, Best and Less, and The Warehouse Group. Today, Susan is the CEO of Smart in Planning, who consults with leading retailers on how to optimize their inventory and ultimately their profitability. Today, We go deep into the world of stock and stock planning. We discuss in detail what a stock plan and forecast should actually look like from starting with an Excel document right through to a specialized enterprise system. We also discuss the importance of planning even in these uncertain times like we have today and why all retailers should be looking up to no one other than Con the Fruiterer as their inspiration. Promise me, it makes sense. So thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet, here's our conversation with Susan Martin, CEO of Smart in Planning. Susan, welcome to Add to Cart. Thanks, Nathan. It's really great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. We are recording this at the start of November and obviously we've got Black Friday, Cyber Monday coming up, which all of retail seems that they're obsessed with at the moment and they need to be. And your game is in merchandise and inventory. So we're really appreciative of your time at this crazy, crazy part of the year. Thanks, Nathan. It's going to be a bit mad. (laughs) So what are you seeing most of at the moment? Are you seeing overstocks or are you seeing retailers struggling to get stock on the shelves? Oh, you know, it's, um, I want to say it's both, but it's actually probably, you know, one of everything. I've, I've sort of been looking across the different businesses that we're working with. I've touched it in with, you know, a few different my team members to go, okay, let's really talk about what's going on out there. And um, I think there's so many different factors at play. I mean, we know these, you know, these past 18 months, two years have been um, different to say the least. And whether a business is, you know, pure play, e-com, whether it's a mix of stores and e-com, they're dealing with different scenarios and, and almost sort of different strategies for each the type of product, whether it's branded or vertical, those are also affecting supply at the moment. And also very much what position were they in when things went wrong? I feel that sounds like a board game, but, <laughs> you know, and even what does what does when things went wrong mean? You know, like for some businesses, you know, different border closures, uh, where their store fleet actually sits. It's a totally different game for everybody right now. And so you've got businesses that have got their 
stock trapped in stores, wrong season stock trapped in stores. You've got businesses depending on their infrastructure and how ready they were for e-com or how quickly they got into, you know, that e-com path. They have or haven't been able <laughs> to deal with what's coming. You know, supply chains, so different sluggish supply chains have become a real problem. Uh, people have been caught really flat-footed there. And even the culture, you know, the culture of the business has been a factor, I think, in whether they're facing overstocks, understocks, because it's how quickly have they been ready to adapt and innovate, take a risk or taking too much risk. So one of our clients um, has got, you know, massive overstocks, you know, they're a large variety retailer, massive overstocks sitting in stores. They've got so many late deliveries that summer is probably going to arrive late and then roll into winter. So it's not even just about right now. It's how much longer is this? Yeah, the knock-on effect. Yeah, the knock-on effect and the lag. And then we've got Another client that's pure play online, um, they're experiencing inbound problems and then they're also experiencing their own receipting. So there's delays coming from their suppliers, heavily branded stock. They're having trouble with their own receipting and then that's creating a dual problem for them. On one hand, they sort of understocked right now, but if all of that stock comes after the cyber events, yep. then they're going to be overstocked. If the cyber events don't perform the way they need them to, they're going to be overstocked. They've already seen a drop off as stores have reopened. They've already seen their demand drop. So, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's really situation, isn't it? it is. It is. Are there any tactics that you've seen from retailers to try and take back some control of either that inventory <laughs> in or inventory out and try and get a little bit more planning and consistency around that? Yeah, look, there are a few things that they're doing. I mean, certainly in my space, merchandise planning, you know, replanning is fundamental. Uh, you know, having having a, a look at how things are performing and then reforecasting what things are going to look like and um, not even only at the, you know, the granular skew level, but at a more macro level across categories and, and for the business as a whole, that activity has become not just safety net, but I guess your your main go-to activity. So I think that's a really key one. And I think that a lot more businesses are using, even if they don't do a formal reforecasting or replan process, I think they've naturally fallen into it a little bit more. So they, they're just going, going back and, and refreshing it more quickly, making contingency plans, working with multiple scenarios, really just trying to be, you know, on their toes, leaving decisions as late as possible. You know, that was something that I learned um, or that was very, very evident to me in the time that I was with Cotton On was how much they they tried to make those those go-to-market decisions as late as possible, getting as much information as you can before you have to lock things down. And I think that's become even more more necessary now. Also, I suppose, putting more emphasis into your your core offering, you know, trimming away some of the peripheral stuff and, and, you know, doubling down on the things that you're known for, uh, the things that are less risk. So you've still got something on offer. You've still got the stuff that's on brand for you. But if things go sideways, you're not as exposed. (laughs) What would you say to people? Because obviously 2021, who could have predicted inventory and stock in 2021 when you don't know what stores are going to be open and, you know, what the world's going to do? What do you say to people who say there's actually no point doing too much planning in today's world? Uh-huh. Yeah, in a funny way, Nathan, I think I've been having that debate with people way before we entered this crisis. I think there, there's always been a little bit of a, oh, you know, you can't know anyway, and you can't. But um, I think what um, I think what it does is it, it it takes you almost through that brainstorming process. It takes you almost through that scenario planning to go, well, what are the things that could happen? And I think what happens with that as well is 
you anticipate what could go well and not so well. And it just leads you into that creative thinking around what could we do about that? And even that alone could lead you into some more creative idea of something that wasn't even on the table before, but you can dream something up and it could be awesome. Um, so I, th- I think the process is just a good process. I think it's a good dynamic. I think it's, I think it unifies cross-functionally across the business. I think it forces you to think a bit more macro, um, understand how all of those different parts of the business are impacting each other. It forces you out of those silos. You can't mm-hmm. just make plans on your own because those relationships are really heightened right yeah. now. But yeah, I think I think there's still a lot of value in planning ahead. I think you just have to be even more okay with the fact that they're plans. They're not facts. Yeah. They they're just, you know, scenarios, they're ideas. And to your point around the process, it's it's just as important to have all those assumptions laid out really clearly so everyone can see so that you can pick up any deviations away from the assumptions early on and get those signals so that you can make those decisions. That's exactly right. That's such a fundamental part of it is that if you haven't planned what you're trying to do, how do you monitor how you're going? How do you know if you're on track? How do you know if you want to do more or less? So if you've got a plan and you can measure against it, it doesn't mean, you know, that everybody is then in trouble afterwards or you're all sort of head down and feeling miserable that you didn't hit the number. It's just it's part of the feedback loop. And I think that's a fundamental part of it. Yeah. Sustainability and ethics lie at the heart of everything that Australian cosmetics brand Adorn Cosmetics does. And this extends to their packaging. They've used eco-friendly packaging since 2013. But when their orders went up to the next level, they needed a sustainable solution that could keep up with them. That's when they discovered Signet's Giami Wrap Pack system. It's helped them reduce packaging costs by 54% and cut paper waste by 50%. That equates to 40,000 metres of paper saved every year. No doubt, that's something to adorn. Signet has over 5,500 packaging solutions that help leading e-commerce retailers like Adorn Cosmetics step up their packaging game. Visit signet.net.au to find out more. That's signet.net.au. For those who haven't seen a merchandise plan before yes. or, you know, spoken to a merchandise planner, it's not even part of their world. And I find that there's not as much talk around merchandise planning in an e-commerce world as there is in an omni-channel or physical world. Can you explain what a merchandise plan looks like? Sure. <laughs> so um, I suppose I might even take a step back and and give them even more context than that. So you've got your merchandise planners who are doing a whole lot of activities, but I'm talking a lot about the merchandise plan that you've just mentioned now, because that is that vehicle for for doing this forecast or the scenario planning. And um, so that's the part that I'm really zooming in on, even if they haven't worked with the merchandise planner before and not covering all the other activities right now. But the merchandise plan is, um, it's both a strategic long range tool and it is also a, a short-term in the now trading enabling kind of tool. But I like to think of it as a means to put you really in the driver's seat so that you can, you really get your bearings on the business. So what you'll see in a merchandise plan, it's also sometimes called a merchandise financial plan, which gets abbreviated to MFP. You love abbreviations, don't we? Oh yeah, seriously. You've got to, <laughs> you've got to learn the language. Um, you'll also sometimes hear it called a WSSI, yep. which stands for weekly sales stock and intake. It's catchy. It is catchy. <laughs> Sometimes people think you're swearing at them, though. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Have you got your whizzy? 
Yeah, <laughs> it can sound a little odd. Sometimes you hear it called a Mizzy, in which case it's just at a monthly level. And, and one of my clients actually, um, they call it Miss Mizzy. So, you know, I guess it can get a little bit more fun. But effectively, um, you know, most of what happens in merchandise planning, um, you're looking at some intersection of product, time and location. And that can be at different levels. So, you know, you can be right down at a SKU level. You can be looking, you know, at a SKU day a store level if you want to get really granular. But the merchandise financial plan tends to be at a quite an aggregated level. So it's not down to skew. But you are you have got all of those dimensions in there. So um you've got your time dimension, which is probably going to take you to at least, you know, week level, but it, you know, then month and aggregating up to your quarters, your seasons, your financial years. So you'll actually be able to see typically at least two financial years in this format, but more often three. So that's a lot of time to be getting your head around, but they are quite flexible um, documents or if they're in a system, you know, you can condense it down and see what you need to see. But you can, that's why I talk about it being a long range tool because you can see well into the future and you can reference historic periods at the same time. So you're in the now, you're planning for the future, you're referencing the history. So that's your time dimension. Your product dimension, like I said, it tends to be at an aggregated level. So you might be at your category level. That might be the lowest that you're going to go, rolling up to a department or a division and then up to total company. Mm -hmm. And then you've got your location. So typically, if you're planning down to the detail of all of your products, you might have your your locations condensed into total company and maybe your channel. So maybe e-com, bricks and mortar or something like that. Different businesses have different structures. But those are your main dimensions that you're working with in there. And then you've just got a ton of, <laughs> a ton of panning metrics. So you're going to have all of your sales measures. Uh, you're going to have your, um, your intake or your purchases. So what are you buying? You're going to have your stock position. You're going to have your, your margins, both what you buy your stock at and the margin that you realize after you've taken your markdowns. Yep. You've got all your markdowns in there, preferably different markdown types, you know, promotional markdowns or temporary markdowns, permanent markdowns. And oh my goodness. I'm going into so much detail, so please no, stop great. me. This is fantastic. For someone, who, you know, we don't play in merchandise planning all the time and it's so important. It's critical to impact everything. Like even as you're talking, talking about promotions as part of the stock planning yeah. shows like you've got to have marketing involved in this. You've got to have finance involved. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, you know, this is almost like a business plan more so than a stock plan. It, it is because, you know, the whole thing about this merchandise plan is it's where all of those measures come together. And that's what I love about it. You can probably hear how excited I get when I talk about it because it's so much, um, it's so much insight. It's so much visibility. It's so much control. And I know people sometimes get nervous when you, or when I talk about control, because I think there can be this connotation of planning being a little bit of, I don't know, a bit of a killjoy and a bit too restrictive and that sort of thing. But to me, actually, there's a, there's a, funny little twist in that where the control is actually what gives you freedom. The control is actually what puts you in a position to innovate or grow. You can understand what's going on through through the control and the visibility that comes with that with that tool. Yep. From there you can do anything you like. No one's, you know, um, no one's making too many rules around that. And yeah, it brings all of it together because the starting point is actually your sales. Yep. The end point is around that visibility to manage and control your stock profitably. But the starting point is your sales. And in order to develop a, a reliable and accurate, oh, as accurate as possible, it's always going to be flexible, <laughs> um, sales plan, um, you need that input. You need to understand what's going on in the stores or you know in your market at the time. You need to know what's planned from a marketing point of view what sort of 
response are they expecting from that? And you model all of that into the sales and then you sense check it and you go, are we just putting in what we want to hear? If we compare that to previous times that we've done similar activity or just, you know, anything in our history, does this seem completely out of whack? Like, is it just, you know, 10 times better than what we've ever done before? And it's okay if it is, you know, you might look at it and go, well, we must, you know, I don't know what, what was in our drink? Like, how did we come up with that number? <laughs> but the main thing is that you just ask yourself that question. And then you might all go, you know what? It does look ridiculous, but it's doable because here are all the things that sit beneath it. Here are all the things that we're going to do to actually achieve that. And then, then you can do it. Then you buy the stock to go with it. And do you normally find in organizations where you see it work the best, do you find that the merch planner takes control and puts out like a, almost like a theory or a thesis like around this is what we think we can do and then testing it with different departments or do you find that it's a collaborative piece? Uh, It can be both. So it depends a lot on the maturity of the planner, like their own experience, maturity of planning in the organization. Ideally, you know, what I like to see happen is that the, the merchandise planner collaborates cross-functionally as part of preparing um, that merchandise plan. Typically, they will need to do a little bit of work first um, rather than just sort of arrive with a blank page and kind of, you know, drag somebody through (laughs) a very exciting process (laughs) of replanning. You know, it's good for them to sort of have a first pass, update the actuals and have a little bit of a forward view that they can talk people through. But then I think, you know, it's good for them to actually pull all those people in, collaborate, and then there tends to be a a sign-off process where, you know, people are sitting around and having a discussion and the planner will actually present it or maybe the planner and buyer together will present it and have the opportunity for, you know, the executive or people from other functions to um, validate some things and pressure test some things. So it's a a bit of both. Yeah, great. And in terms of the actual plan itself, are we talking an Excel spreadsheet where we open up a new tab for every year of planning or are we talking some much more sophisticated system? Yeah, everything on the spectrum. So <laughs> quite a few businesses that we work with don't have anything actually it, fulfilling this function. The one um, the one founder that I sat with at online business, when I sat and, and was describing it to her, probably a little bit less um, <laughs> how I was earlier, but giving her a sense of what that merchandise plan would be, I actually could see her face change, <laughs> changing color. Like, And she said to me, I can just feel the weight dropping away from me when I think about what that would give me, that insight on my business. I could just sort of feel that. Yeah. <sighs> That would be so good. So the thing is that a lot of businesses don't actually have that. Of course, they would be doing elements of that process to, you know, to be functioning at all. But a lot of them don't actually have it in that format. And with all of those metrics and, and the interplay between them that I was describing before, a lot of them don't have it at all. And then you've got some who are working in a version of Excel and, um, yeah, probably, you know, at, at either just the whole company or a tab per category, and then they make a new one for the new year. And then you go all the way up into sophisticated software, really sophisticated software that you can implement. There's some amazing stuff out there and more and more modules that go into all the other facets of planning, assortment planning and, you know, allocation and replenishment, markdown optimization. There's systems that, you know, all connect and yeah, all of that beautifully. Are they usually part of a large organization's ERP system? No, no. You'll sometimes find that an ERP system has elements of those things. 
you'll almost never hear them talked about in planning circles in any sort of meaningful way. Those systems that I'm talking about, they are independent software suites that are specifically around merchandise planning and inventory management. Okay, cool. And so it sounds like these plans aren't kind of a static thing that planners create, get signed off and go, great, it's done. It feels like it's a live working document. Oh, Nathan, you make my heart so happy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a live working dynamic document. And I wish people um, would embrace that more and understand that more. And and what would be the use of something static in retail? Like what would be the value of that at all? Yeah. So it's very much something that is um, refreshed with new information and new thinking. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And you mentioned before some of those metrics that go into this planning process. From your perspective, what are the most important metrics that you keep an eye on to know if a business is running at a healthy inventory level? Ooh, this is exciting <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I personally, I like to deal with a metric called freshness, which not everybody has come across. And when I first learned it, you know, even off the back of my planning background from South Africa where, you know, the way I learned planning was probably a few steps ahead of where Australia was at the time, at least. Although truthfully, I still think that there's some stuff that we did back then that was more advanced than what I've seen in certain environments here and this is now 20 years on. Wow. Yeah. But, um, but so when I first learned about freshness from somebody actually here in Australia, I was a little bit skeptical about it. And I thought, oh, I feel like you just made that. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't sound very technical does it yeah and so i'm not really sure about that one but um i i used it where i was taught it um which was um, with the warehouse group when i was um employed by them and i i don't know the lights came on for me a little bit with that metric and i've used it ever since and i've you know any business where i've implemented planning i've i've put in this freshness factor and effectively it's a quite a simple little measure. It's really, it's looking at your, your receipts or your, you know, your intake over the last three months as a ratio of your overall stock on hand. Okay. And so you just express that as a percentage. Okay. And why three months? There, there is a tipping point. I won't, um, I, won't, I don't want to quote numbers that people then take to literally, but loose rule of thumb of a freshness factor over 80% would be considered healthy. Okay. So, and if you think about what that really means, it's, it's pretty much saying the, the value of the stock that you receipted in the last three months represents 80% of what you've got on offer. And when you connect that through to other planning metrics like stock turn and sell through, you can see that it's bang on with where, you know, those good efficiency levels would be. So it kind of makes sense with hindsight <laughs> after yeah. I was like, mm, what's that? <laughs> I, I kind of got, oh, I kind of see where it sits. It's, it's not dealing with aging. So of course, if, you know, yeah. If you haven't dealt with your old stock and so on, you can have distortion. But what what I love about that measure, one is simple. You should be able to calculate it with the information you have available. Data can be uh, really challenging at times, but that one should be able to be achieved. But I have found it to be such a powerful indicator for profitability. Okay. So there are times that that freshness factor should should go up more. So, you know, for example, coming out to a peak season, you know, you're loading up your stock to do your big Christmas sales or your big, you know, cyber sales or whatever it is. And of course you'd expect your, your purchases to be a higher portion of that ratio. So you'd see a freshness factor going up closer to a hundred percent. So you would expect it to move at different times, but looking at that freshness factor in relation to your profitability is gold. 
when you see it diving and, and, you know, you'll have it forecast into future, you know, six, eight, 12 months into the future, if you see that freshness factor dropping off, you know that you need to stimulate your markdowns. You know that you need to start, you know, maybe your, your open to buyers getting strangled and you need to release more money into the business. So it's a really great indicator for that. Yeah, okay. In a similar way, closing stock margin, and it's another sort of quite fringy measure, but I use it heavily. Yeah. Also a tremendous indicator for future profitability. And what does closing stock margin look like? Effectively, margin is the same calculation wherever you apply it. So most people are familiar with the sales margin. You know, it's the difference between your retail and your cost divided by your retail value expressed as a percentage, but you can apply that same calculation onto your purchases. So, you know, you're buying something, what's the retail value of what you're buying? What's the cost value, the margin between the two? Divide that by the retail value. So, you know, you might buy something at a 70 margin, but by the time you've taken markdowns and so on, your selling margin or your gross profit might be 60, for example. Similarly, your closing stock margin, it's the same calculation, but it is representing your overall stock that you own across your whole network, what's sitting in the DC, what's sitting in your stores, all taken together. And if you sum up the retail value of all of that stock and the cost value of all of that stock, do that calculation, you might find that your um, your closing stock margin is maybe, say, 55. Yep. If you're buying in at 70 and you're trading at 60, for example, and, and somehow you're landing up in this really low closing stock margin scenario, as you then try and plan forward your your future sales margin, if you don't have strength yep. in your stock on hand from a margin point of view, it's telling you straight away you're dreaming. Mm. If you think you can achieve a 60 yep. sales result or for 55 stock hmm. position. So it's all it's all there in front of you. You just got to do the maths. Yep, you just got to do the maths and you got to you got to look at things relative to other things. Like not take numbers as absolutes, but look at them relative to other things. Yes. So those are some of my favorites. I love a forward cover rather than a spot cover because again it tells you something about the future. Spot cover just tells you right now what's the position. And what does spot cover mean? Spot cover is just the relationship between your stock and your sales. So how many times does your stock cover the sales you just did, whether last week or last month. But I prefer a stock cover that looks forward. So instead of using your historic sales in in relation to your stock, you use your forward sales. And you can only do that if you have a forward sales plan, (laughs) which a lot of businesses might not if they haven't got a merchandise financial plan in place or some type of plan in place. That makes sense. On the freshness piece, the question that I had going through my head is Mm. if I'm a retailer of, say, foot spas, and I go, foot spas, they don't go off. I could store them forever. The technology is not moving anywhere. So I'll always be in fashion. I know that I can ship a certain amount per year. If I go, it's actually cheaper for me just to buy a big bulk lot of them and store it in a warehouse for two years and just get them, yeah. trickle them out. Where does freshness play a role in those kind of businesses? Uh, it doesn't necessarily. And that's, it's such a good question, Nathan, because not every measure is relevant in every situation. And in that situation, if you've done that that maths and that, that analysis to go, actually, there is a better benefit for my business in terms of buying in bulk, the volume discount that I got for that offsets what I'm paying in storage to hold it for that long. It offsets whatever the associated costs are of tying up my capital yep. because I spent the money on that stock. Now it's sitting there and not doing anything for me. If you've taken those sorts of things into consideration and that's a better decision, Go for your life, yeah. um, and then freshness wouldn't wouldn't be a factor there, and it wouldn't be as much in um, in heavily core or repeat type product. 
uh, because it's effectively the same thing. But but you can still see a lag happening if your OTBs become very constrained. So you can still take something out of it, but I wouldn't force a freshness factor into that scenario. Yeah, but it'd have to. It, the points that you made in there were really good in terms of it has to stack up financially because it's not just the cost of buying it. It's that you've got to see that stack of goods sitting there as a pile of money that you could be doing other things with that's actually costing you money because it's a warehouse that you're either renting or owning. There's a lot yep, of And if you're it. borrowing money to pay for your stock, well, you're now you're paying interest on the money mm-hmm. you borrowed. And also the longer you're sitting on something like that, and I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying do your homework. The longer you sit on something like that, the more chance also that you do get caught in an, in an obsolescence, obsolescence position yep. because you can't know what else is going to happen in the market. You can't know what your competitors are going to do. And even if they don't innovate into an, a wonderfully different foot spa, maybe they will go into some kind of price position that you can't follow them into. And now you're sitting with all of the stock that you actually can never go to that same price point. So there isn't indefinite safety in yeah. repeat product either. It feels like it kind of ties back to your original point around the retailers that are doing well are those that can make decisions late and be more flexible. Yes. If you've already locked into your position, then you take that kind of weaponry out of your, out of your tool belt already and it's done. Jenny Craig has been helping Australians lose weight since 1983. But did you know that until recently, the website purely served to support customers visit a physical store or call a consultant? Luckily, Jenny Craig partnered with Shopify Plus to launch their new online ordering system. This includes a drag-and-drop meal plan, HubSpot CRM integration, and time-based delivery options for all that cold stuff. They've already achieved a 2.5% conversion rate without any marketing and are now looking to stack on the pounds. I mean, dollars. To read more of Jenny Craig's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. So Susan, you see a lot of merchandising and inventory strategies across omnichannel, physical and e-commerce. Is there anything that you're seeing, especially around e-commerce businesses that are using inventory and planning to differentiate themselves? I suppose I am. I think, you know, the the thing with with e-com in particular is this question around width because you're not constrained, obviously, by the four walls, which we know. But while it might only be a digital presence when you are an e-com store, the stock is still physical. So you still own it. And I think there's there can be a real risk there around width. Mm. range width because you don't have that kind of hard stop. And so I am seeing businesses that have been struggling with that, leaning more into merchandise planning as a solution for that now. So they might've started off. And I think, you know, because so many e-com businesses have been such almost overnight success stories, and I don't say it like that in a way to minimize the heavy lifting they've done to achieve what they've achieved, but they, so many of them actually did, you know, rise to popularity so quickly. Oh, the growth rates have been phenomenal. Yeah, unbelievable. But they haven't had necessarily the opportunity then to put in place some of the infrastructure, some of the processes and and the things that can support their growth. And even now I'm, I'm seeing some of them sort of running really fast to play catch up. And that's different to all the guys that have tried to play catch up just with having their e-com presence. I mean, literally the pure play guys, 
going back and trying to figure out systems. Often people who've led those businesses didn't come from retail necessarily. They've done unbelievably well, but now they're kind of playing catch up on some of those things. And so that is where I'm seeing people actually embracing more and more of the merchandise planning activities and thinking to to rein in some of what worked okay or well before that was a little bit more of uh, about what I know is on brand and because I am brand into putting a bit more of that, you know, science and analysis behind it. I have also in the past seen some e-com retailers slow to mark down. So I know there can also be the sort of the stigma of, oh, they're, you know, always promoting and, you know, giving away online and, you know, a little worried about sort of a bit of brand erosion with everything is available online and all the markdown stuff kind of gets flushed out online. But I have seen some pure play businesses that are quite slow to mark down. And again, as we've sort of worked with with them and, and, really shown them, again, that, that that stock is basically sitting there preventing them from buying something else. There's been this this readiness to move into, okay, actually, we need to do a bit of a cleanup here. So discounting doesn't necessarily need to be a dirty word. It doesn't. You, you Actually, you need to do it. Your stock needs to move. What's actually more of a dirty word, I don't know what the word is, though, is <laughs> having it stand still. So, you know, yeah. idle stock, that is that is probably mm. the worst case scenario. Yeah. And again, that same very clever person who taught me about freshness used to use this expression of think of it like, it doesn't matter whether or not you're selling fruit, think of it like fruit. Mm. If you're not moving it through quickly, it's going to rot. It's going to smell really bad. <laughs> you want it to move. <laughs> you want it going. Um, and it's a visual that stayed with me. But another, but another area that I do think is becoming increasingly important for online businesses is um, around attributing. It's something that in merchandise planning, we've always loved. We've always been the people that have wanted to go and put sort of extra attributes across a product. And it's always helped us with our analysis, but very often planners find themselves in environments where they've had to actually go and put all of that information in themselves. So, you know, they're busy doing a bunch of analysis and they're sitting there typing short sleeve, short sleeve, long sleeve, long sleeve, knee, uh, yep. <laughs> you know, like full length, knee length, whatever it might be. And adding in all of this sort of rich information about the product so that when we're building up a range plan and trying to give the buyers a steer on what should they be shopping for and what performed well, that we've really been able to do that Rubik's Cube type number crunching to go, this stuff sold really well, this stuff sold well at full price, more of that, less of this, tell me about your trends, okay, this is the equivalent thing of that, so do more of that. And as we go through that whole activity, we've often been the ones that have had to fill in all the missing pieces on a product's um attributes Mm. but i think that that is getting more and more focused now and there's some really great technology coming through there as well that's enabling that and i think that's going to be pretty powerful because it goes into search and it goes into Mm. helping your customer navigate your website and so i think that's quite important because it's offline so you want to give the customer the best opportunity to understand that product to find it to know what it is and make that decision easily so if I'm an e-commerce retailer listening to this and going, oh, geez, I don't have any of this merch planning stuff set up. Um, I'm going a lot on gut feel at the moment. I know what's working, but it's not documented or it's not a process. What are, say, a couple of simple tips that you would recommend for these businesses to get started in creating that process? Well, first of all, I'd say, okay, well, you're not alone, so <laughs> take a breath. But I think... Um, They probably are doing more than they realize. It probably doesn't have a label. I think one of the most basic first steps is actually around, um, is around the systems and the data. So even when a business does reach the point that they realize that they want more merchandise planning influence in their business or, you know, more 
science behind what they're doing. The stumbling block often still will be data and systems. Mm. There's a lot of businesses that are working on Google Sheets, which I don't even like Google Sheets as much as I like Excel. <laughs> um, but, um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's cobbled together yeah. and it's, it's prone to error and it's, um, it's heavily manual. And, you, you know, by the time you put all the stuff together, you barely have a moment to actually think about what it means. It's not to say that they need to go and invest in systems as their first step, but I think that there is definitely a need for good data and you can achieve that in a manual way by putting some disciplines around what you do and, um, you know, just paying attention to it. But I do think also then trying to think more holistically around the stock and looking at it from different angles so Mm. that you can really see where the profitability comes in, having that top of mind more so than I think people typically do, you know, not being overly sales oriented. Of course, you want to drive sales. Of course, you want to have sales growth. Those things are are key, but you don't want hollow sales growth. You don't want sales for the sake of sales, and it's not actually able to keep the business ticking. So I think having that awareness, just really lifting profitability up, yep. <laughs> up awareness scales, getting a focus onto data. Thinking like a green grocer. Thinking like a green grocer, <laughs> um, understanding that that stock really needs to keep moving. Yeah. There are some small steps that they can, that they can take. And, um, you know, and then you don't have to go and do end to end merchandise planning from day one. It's, it's not even appropriate for every business from day one. So I think, you know, baby steps, yep. keeping some records, you know, trying to think a little further forward, even, I mean, it sounds really simple. Even a, a phone call that I got this week was a case of, this business is online and I think about 20 stores and it sounds like they're still just buy. They just mm. go and buy stuff. And I'm sure they know what they're doing with that. I'm sure they know what their customer wants. And I'm, I'm sure that's actually really fine tuned in terms of their understanding of their market, but the quantification that goes around it and how to actually manage that stock through its life cycle and those sorts of things, those aren't as, as established and certainly not for that business. So, yeah, I think just thinking forward a little further and going, okay, it's not just about now. It's not just about this buy. It's what's the life cycle of the stock? Where is it going next? Mm. How will I exit it? Just trying to yeah, extend that horizon, I think, would be helpful. Do you foresee that there's uh, big competitive advantages coming or, or available right now for organizations that have really strong data that can be used to kind of automate and predict stock levels without a human intervention? I was going to say yes, right up until your the last human statement, in- <laughs> the human intervention part. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I love systems and I, I love how much more efficient you can be and I love how accurate they can be and, and all of that stuff. So I think, you know, I'm pro systems, powerful, awesome. And I think there's massive opportunity still there. I'm less convinced on the, on the lack of human intervention part. Or at least in the short to medium term. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that we won't, you know, all be in space rockets in the future. <laughs> um, but I think what I am saying is that um, when I look at how undeveloped a lot of retail environments still are, how immature, not even just the process and the technology or the methodology and, and tools and so on, but actually the thinking is, I feel like there's a really long way to go for a lot of retailers still. And if you don't have that thinking, I don't think that having the systems, the sophisticated systems will get you all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they'll, they'll do the bulk of it. I still think there will be decisions that need to be made with that, that 
require an in-depth understanding that require more than pressing the buttons, yep. at least in the short to medium term. Longer term, hmm. <laughs> we could be on the moon. Do you, <laughs> yeah. for, so for people who are going, oh, I would love to train myself up or train my team up mm. in understanding that merchandise thinking better, what resources would you recommend for them? Oh, well, you know, Nathan. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is plug time. Come on. <laughs> um, is, is this the plug part? This no, is the look, plug part. <laughs> no, look, the thing is that um, I always count myself really lucky that I had the start that I did in merchandise planning, but that was back in South Africa. And when I came to Australia, I found planning a lot less developed here. And I don't I don't mean to disrespect anybody in that, res- in, in that statement because – you know, it's the same as when I joined Cotton On and, and planning wasn't super established there at the time. And yet they were super successful. Yeah. <laughs> so it was super successful before I got there, before we started doing anything with planning. But why they wanted planning at the time was they said, you know, what served us well for the first 20 years is probably going to be different to what serves us well for the next 20. And we think merchandise planning is part of, you know, the picture for the next 20. So I don't, I don't disrespect what anybody's achieved so far. It's just that the planning approach has been probably underplayed. And so you tend to find in a, in a lot of businesses here that planning's been owned by finance because it's had to do with how do we spend our money yes. or um, <laughs> give it back <laughs> or that it's been an extension of a buyer or category manager's portfolio. And, and then um, people in those roles in varying degrees would, would or wouldn't have a leaning towards some of that stuff. And so it's kind of been learn it on the job, learn it from someone who went before, but that someone who went before might not necessarily have known that much about it. Um, so it's, I actually think it's been an incredibly difficult environment here for people to develop planning um, knowledge and skills. And through the different roles that I've had, I've recruited and trained planners over and over again and built training programs and, and all sorts of things in my employed positions. But now as part of Smart and Planning, we've built a, a merchandise planning course. So we have an online training program called Merchandise Planning Foundations. And I recommend that because <laughs> it took me, I think it, you know, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a love project. I didn't necessarily think it would necessarily be super popular, mm. but it was something I absolutely needed to do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I had been through so many situations of having to train people. I kind of, I needed to just get it out of my head and park it yep. somewhere. Yep. But of course it's, um, you know, I've always talked about grow your own because it's planning's always been in short supply here. Even the sponsorship rules have changed around that. You can't import planners the way you could, yep. but yeah, I think, you know, grow your own. Uh, we, we've put together a program to do that. So I recommend it. And we've had super, super feedback from people who awesome. already are established in their planning careers. People even at planning manager level, general manager, finance roles. So I think there's, because I think some of the, the mindset is covered there as well. It's not just about going and learning your retail maths. Uh, Cause that'd like, you know, I'd also fall asleep. <laughs> I think because we try to capture so much of the mindset and the thinking that goes with it. I think that also fills in a lot of gaps and makes people go, ah, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why that matters. This is the why, not just the how. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we'll put a link in the show notes and the blog to the course as well. What attributes make a good planner? In all your experience, yeah. if you kind of put the best planners together, are they analytical? Are they creative? You know, I was going to say maybe I'm alone in this, but I actually know that I'm not because the content that I put out on LinkedIn and the response that I get from that tells me that I'm, I'm speaking to people who agree. <laughs> Who agree with me. So 
I try and push back a little bit against what I sometimes think the stereotype of a merchandise planner is, which is very much this extension of finance, hyper-analytical, possibly therefore leaning too much into the being quite absolute with numbers. You know, the numbers say, or computer says that Mm. that's the answer. And to me, that's not what planning is at all. And (laughs) confession. So here we go. Yeah. So I'm, I've never actually considered myself a numbers person. Mm-hmm. I hope none of my clients are listening. <laughs> um, and if you spoke to my brother who has got a, um, you know, is a chartered accountant by profession and, and you asked him about, you know, me trying to learn maths and science back at school, like he would have <laughs> PTSD um, kind of reactions. And why I'm saying that is because planning does require attention to detail. And it, and it, of course, it helps to have that analytical and numerical aptitude. But there is so much more to it. And I actually think that if you have, if you overemphasize that, you miss a really big chunk of what's important to be successful in merchandise planning, which is much more into the commercial thinking. It's much more into that business acumen. And I think that's actually why I landed up falling into merchandise planning. My passion was very much on a service path, actually. It was, um, I wanted to go into hospitality. But um, I fell into merchandise planning because of the degree that I did, which was a Bachelor of Business Science. And the the company that employed me and, and trained me used to seek out business science students because of that commercial acumen. They knew that they were people who would succeed in planning, uh, not because we had done, you know, stats or maths or whatever it was, but because of the broader business thinking that we had developed through that through the course of that degree. And, and I totally, I totally believe in that. I think a good degree of creativity, a problem solving, I think is high up there. Like be a lateral thinker, be a problem solver. Yes, have your eye tuned for risk because we, we don't, you know, want to be reckless. You want to be a little bit more on the conservative side. Yeah. But, um, but let logic prevail, you know, be open to looking at the information that's available to you and sifting through it and prioritizing it. Be a good communicator. Engage with other people, you know, yeah. and be contextually aware. Like those are things to me that, that make a great merchandise plan. I always say I'm looking for the bright eyes. Like, mm. I, you know, and, and I put out a, a thing the other day, you know, aptitude plus attitude equals altitude. Like I think you need to have the aptitude. Of course, you've got to have some of those raw materials. If you're, if you're hopeless at, at numbers and you're sloppy with attention to detail and all of those things, you're not going to do well. But so much of it is going to be that attitude, that problem solving, that yeah. that drive. And, you know, then I think you'll take off. You'll do really well. So don't rule yourself out if you're not a, a macro master or a pivot table person. It's, uh, there's a, it's a lot more well-rounded than that. Yeah. And, you know, and so much of that stuff can be learned. But I think if you've got the right, yeah, just that right combination of, of and, and that interest and that love for retail. Yeah. You've got to be fascinated with it. You've got to, you know, you've got to be that, yeah. <laughs> yes. It takes that. <laughs> Retail is a special game. Yep, it is. Susan, thank you so much for sharing everything today. I feel like we've only touched, you know, a tiny part of your world, but it's been brilliant to go and have a deep dive into what merch planning looks like. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, no, you're so welcome. I'll talk about it all day, any day. I love it so much, which I suppose is a good thing after 25 years. So thank you so much for having me on, Nathan. I've loved talking about it, always do. I mean, I hope it helps. I hope it helps. Beautiful. Now, if people are listening to this and are wondering how they can get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, drop me an email. I've sort of almost got like RSI from how often I pick up my phone. So drop me an email, Susan, S-U-S-A-N, at smartinplanning.com. 
or check out our website or, or my LinkedIn profile. There's tons of places you can find me. Beautiful. And there's so much good content too. You're, you um, consistently put out some great stuff on LinkedIn. So thanks so much. Worth connecting. Go and do it. Susan, thank you. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Take care. I think Susan has helped lift the lid on the mysterious world of merchandise planning. And I think my earlier comparison to air filters probably isn't fair now. Now, I hope it didn't scare the bejesus out of you. As you heard from Susan herself, many retailers, even the big ones, don't have the fundamentals in place. Here are my top three practical takeaways from our chat. Number one, the dimensions of a merch plan. I always heard the term merchandise planning, but never actually understood what it physically looked like. And as Susan explained, a good merchandising plan should have three dimensions, product, time, and location. It should have a two-year time frame minimum. It should have clear assumptions, and it should be a living, breathing document. Rolling stock gathers no moss. To me, that really helped Actually, that analogy doesn't help at all. But Susan's idea of a merchandising plan really helped crystallize what we should be creating in our businesses. Number two, freshness. Susan's key metric was freshness. That's my con the fruiter analogy. This is your new stock intake over the last three months as a ratio of your overall stock on hand. New stock intake over the last three months as a ratio of your overall stock on hand. And it should be expressed as a percentage. Freshness over 80% in Susan's book is considered healthy. Obviously, that is just a round number as a benchmark. It'll be different for every business. And the last one, number three, act last minute. It goes against everything your teachers have taught you. But when it comes to inventory, you want to leave decisions as late as possible to optimize freshness and profitability. You don't want to get stuck with bad inventory. Having a clear plan, multiple scenarios, and contingency plans will help you do these last-minute decisions safely. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com.au forward slash high five. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart.